You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. Good morning, church. Wow, I didn't know he was going to... That was a lot. Thanks, Riz. Um, Yeah, welcome. Welcome to Reality, uh, everyone that's here and everyone that's online. Uh, it's so, so good to be with you this morning. Um, you, you guys have meant uh, so much to us. Uh, my wife Meg and I uh, have been coming to the church for about three years, and um, we can't even put into words how much you guys have meant to us. So uh, it's, a real, it's a real honor uh, and privilege to be up here this morning. And uh, like video virtual Riz said, uh, we're currently in the middle of our summer in the Psalm series. Uh, and specifically, we're looking at the Psalms as a manual for prayer. And so hopefully, as we've gone through this series, you've uh, heard some, maybe some new ways to pray or some different ways that have grown and expanded your prayer life. Uh, and today, we're going to be looking at Psalm 77. Psalm 77 is a psalm of lament. Last week, Abby preached to us from Psalm 42, which is also a psalm of lament. And she noted that lament isn't really a word that we maybe use in our day-to-day lives that much. So she defined a psalm of lament as follows. It's a passionate expression of sorrow or grief. This is actually the most common type of psalm. Uh, 57, about, of the 150 are lament songs. And uh, one thing she brought up is that these psalms really help us to and really encourage us to bring every type of emotion to God in prayer. Not just our praises and not just when things are going well, but also to bring our fear and our anger and our despair and our confusion and our grief to God. And this morning, we're going to be looking at bringing our doubt to God in prayer. All of us at some point in our lives are going to face things which make us ask the sorts of questions like, does God really have a good plan that's at work in the world today? Is he really good? Is he powerful to enact his good plan? Is he really in control? And when we have these thoughts, our tendency might be to sort of stuff these down and push them aside because it feels uncomfortable. But the Lament Psalms, and I think specifically Psalm 77, uh, show us that God wants us to work through these emotions together with him in prayer. And it gives us a blueprint for how to do this in a healthy way and in a way that's going to help us to grow rather than to regress. So uh, with that being said, I'm just going to go ahead and and read through the full psalm. This is from the ESV translation. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I considered the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? 
Then I said, it is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of, Joseph, of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder, your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. May the Lord bless giving us a good understanding of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that uh, it's good, and thank you that uh, you give us resources to, to pray through our doubt and to help us through the most difficult times. I pray that your spirit would speak through me and that you would be glorified by our time together this morning. Amen. Amen. All right, let's get into it. So I'm just going to reread verses 1 and 2. I cried aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. So the author of this psalm is Asaph. And Asaph was a priest and a musician under King David uh, in the ancient kingdom of Israel. And he actually wrote uh, 12 psalms. And what we learn here is that he's going through some time of trouble, and he's crying out to God for help. He doesn't say what this trouble is, but I think that's kind of a good thing because it really makes it applicable to all of us and to all of our circumstances. And presumably, he, he does the right thing here. When he's in this hard time, he goes to God. He, he does so day and night. He says he stretched out his hands without wearying. And, and then at the end here, at the end of uh, verse 2, he says, my soul refuses to be comforted. And I think what he's doing here is, is he's refusing kind of a simple or an easy answer. He doesn't want to be told, oh, it'll all be okay, it'll all work out, or just move on and get over it. That's not what he's looking for. What he wants is for God to fix the problem. He's not complaining about sort of trivial things or things that annoy him. Whatever's going on in his life is a deep hurt and a deep pain that's disturbing, like, the very essence of who he is. This is something that's troubling him day after day after day. It doesn't have a quick or an easy fix. It's not something he can just move on from. And he wants God to intervene. And uh, I think this reflects how serious of a problem he's going through. And, and this is relatable. I think when I say these things and when I describe this kind of problem, there's probably something that comes to your mind. Um, so just as we move on and through the rest of the psalm, I just want to set the context and set the stage that he's going through something really difficult. Okay, so moving to verses 3 and 4. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. 
You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. So clearly here, he hasn't gotten the answer that he was looking for. And that's caused his entire perception of God to, to change. Now when he thinks about God, it's causing him pain. It's causing him to grow weak. Because he sees that God has the ability, he knows that God has the ability to fix whatever's gone wrong, but he hasn't. So this trial now is just dominating his thought life, and it's the lens through which he sees his whole world, and even the lens now through which he sees God. And again, we, you kind of get the sense that he, we would think he's doing the right thing, right? He's remembering God, he's meditating, but that thinking and that meditation is only making it worse. It's causing him so much pain that he can't even sleep, he can't even speak. He's just completely broken, and when he turned to God, he saw only silence, and he saw only a lack of action. And that's just really taken him over the edge. At the beginning of our series, we, we went through Psalms 1 and Psalms 23, which are really awesome, beautiful psalms about God's joy and his peace and the prosperity that he wants to bring to his people. And that's what Asaph wants too. He's like, I'm going through this really hard time. Where, where are all of these good things that you've promised? And when he reaches out to take hold of those things, he just keeps coming up empty. But don't worry, it gets worse. So verses 5 through 9. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has he forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? So, now we're here. Now we're really at the point. Now we're really at his true feelings. He is doubting and questioning God. He knows that God has promised him good things, but he just can't see him, and he feels abandoned, he feels rejected, and he feels unloved, and he does not hold back. He really is going after the character of God. These aren't just random sort of accusations that he's making. All of these questions contain covenantal language. So the covenant is a promise that God made between himself and the people of Israel that he would be their God and they would be his people, they would be his representatives to the world, and he would cause them to grow and to flourish if they followed him. And all of these questions are a direct reference to the covenant that God has made with his people Israel. And Asaph is a priest, so this is his whole life. This is his whole culture. This is his whole nation. This is, this is his identity. And he's questioning the most sacred and profound part of who God is. And now this, this trial, this thing he's going to, has caused him to look at all those things and say, is it even real? Are all those promises and attributes of God even real? I want to give us maybe a little bit of an example of, of what he's doing here with the covenantal language. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read Exodus 34, 6 and 7. And these verses are actually the most quoted verses in the Bible by the Bible. So other biblical authors, authors reference this verse more than any other. Um, 
And so it's, it's really foundational to the, the ancient Israel's understanding of who God is. So I'm going to read it, and I want you to see if you can spot the parallels between the questions he's asking and these verses, how these verses will make a statement about who God is, and then how Asaph questions these aspects and character attributes of God. So Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving, the, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but whom, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So you can see how he's really questioning everything that he thought was true. This says that God is gracious and, and shows favor. And he says, is he never going to show his favor? He says, God is abounding in steadfast love. And he's, he says, where is it? I don't see it. How can all of these good things about God be true if I'm going through this terrible thing? This is really raw and it's really honest and it's probably uncomfortable. Uh, there's not... At least, I don't know, there's not any worship songs about Psalm 77, 1 through 9. The Bible claims that God is good and that he loves us and that he's in control. But this belief is going to be confronted in all of us at some point. Uh, whether it's we're going through something awful in our lives right now, but even if we're not, you just have to look at the world around us, right? I don't have to tell you all of the terrible, terrible things that are happening right now. And this belief that God is good and that he has a good plan is going to be challenged. But the key takeaway from these verses is that we shouldn't try to hide these from God. We shouldn't try and just push these doubts away. Uh, I have a quote here from a, a biblical scholar named Tremper Longman, and he says, These charges are serious and bold, but God does not strike the psalmist dead for his impudence. The very presence of this prayer in the Psalms makes it clear that God invites his people's honest and courageous prayers. For me, praying in this way, like laying all my doubts out to God, feels irreverent and like disrespectful. Like who am I to question God, right? But I think the other side of it is, I feel like if I lean into these doubts, then you know, what if they're true? What if these things that I'm doubting about God end up being right? In that case, everything I thought I believed, everything I've built my life on is just wrong, and my life would just crumble. So at least for me, it's easier to just like, we'll just leave that over there. Hopefully it goes away. Uh, and again, I, I, I want to, yeah, this is this is just not healthy, right? That's not what we're supposed to do. We're not supposed to just push it aside. Uh, and I just, I, again, kind of want to emphasize the point that this isn't just like our complaints. This isn't just little annoyances that we don't now have license to go question God's character whenever we want. But at the same time, we're all going to face really difficult things. But the good thing is that the Bible includes resources for doubting people. The Bible doesn't tell us to fear these doubts, but it rather gives us guidance on how to deal with them and how to grow from them because God is big enough to handle our doubts.
And as we go through the second half of the psalm, we're going to see how Asaph prayed through these doubts and how uh, it caused him to grow in his faith and appreciation for who God is. So, verse 10. Uh, Keen-eyed readers would notice that while the rest of what I had up there is in the ESV, uh, verse 10 was actually the NASB translation. Apparently, this is kind of like a difficult verse to translate, so I really like the NASB and the flow of thought, um, but would encourage you to go read other translations. But anyway, verse 10. Then I said, it is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. So he's just called out God. He's just questioned his character. And what does he do next? He examines himself, and he examines his own doubt. And he acknowledges that God hasn't actually changed. Just his perception of God has changed. He recognizes that he hasn't come up with some logical, super well-thought-out, academic uh, argument for why God isn't who he says he is. No, this doubt and this question has come from a really awful time in his life. And that does not all minimize the grief that he's feeling or the difficulty that he's going through, but at the same time, it's key for him to take a step back and acknowledge that while his grief has changed his perception of who God is, God himself has not actually changed. And, and this is really the turning point in the psalm. The whole tone really shifts after this point. Uh, and and once, once Asaph has identified the true cause and the source of his doubt, he then needs to reconstruct a correct view of God, and the way he does that is through remembrance. So verses 11 through 15. I will remember the deeds of the Lord, Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. So the next step in, his, in this process here in praying through his doubt is to remember God's action. Remember what God has, has physically done. And you'll notice that in, uh, in the first part of the psalm, the words remember and meditate uh, happen a lot. And then remember and meditate are again repeated uh, in, in this part of the psalm. Uh, and I, th I think that shows that while he spent a lot of energy remembering and meditating on his grief, he spends that same energy remembering and meditating on the good things that God has done. And specifically, remember, Asaph was questioning God's covenant with his people. So what he does now is he remember when God displayed that his covenant is true and that he really demonstrated that he is Israel's God and that he is with them. Uh, he, he clearly, Asaph clearly has an idea of what God's character is supposed to be because that's what he questions. He questions if God is loving and God is gracious and God is merciful. So he knows that what, that's what God is supposed to be, but for him in that moment, it's just kind of an abstract idea, like, oh, God is good. But when he faces a really difficult thing, that kind of it's, feels kind of shallow for him, right? It doesn't really, doesn't really uh, ring very true. 
because he doesn't see those attributes. He kind of knows what they're supposed to be, but he can't see them. So what he does here is to then remember and meditate on God has done and remember how he has demonstrated those characteristics. And when he does this, those attributes of God aren't just head knowledge anymore, they become self-evident. And, and this is much more powerful. By remembering, we can see the evidence of God's character. And when we bring our doubt to him in prayer and then remember, he can show us what is really true. And he invites us into this process because his actions speak for themselves. Hopefully that makes sense, but I think he gives us an example and a bit of an insight into what this process looks like for him uh, in, in the last part of the psalm, this last section, verses 16 through 20. And I know for me, these verses kind of felt out of place, like he's talking about thunder and lightning and water, and it's like, wait, where, where did that come from? I thought we were remembering. But what he's doing here is he is poetically retelling and remembering when Israel crossed the Red Sea. And he meditates and thinks about it deeply. Uh, and I think he comes out of that result, out of that remembrance and meditation uh, with a renewed sense of who God is and with some of his doubts overcome and with some of his faith restored. So I think as we read through this, we can have some insight into what his process looked like. So verses 16 through 20. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder, your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind, your lightnings lighted up the world, the earth trembled and footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So again, uh, this is sort of a really cool imagery-packed retelling or reflection on the crossing of, of the Red Sea. Uh, and so in order to maybe better understand what insight he gained from it, I want to read uh, some passages uh, and some of the account from Exodus. So uh, where we're at is that the nation of Israel was enslaved in Egypt and God liberated them and freed them from Egypt and uh, Pharaoh, Egypt's king, allowed them to go free. Uh, but after just a few days, he changed his mind and he wanted to bring them back into slavery. So they're in this spot where Pharaoh and his army, who's trying to kill and enslave them, is on one side. And then this sea that they cannot possibly hope to cross is on the other. So they're really in between a rock and a hard place. And this is where, where we pick up the narrative here uh, from Exodus chapter 14, starting in verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people, people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we had said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians." For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. So maybe you kind of picked up on some of the similarities uh, between this account and, and this psalm. These people are in a really difficult spot. They're crying out to the Lord and they're questioning him 
uh, and they're questioning the promises that, that he has made to them, and they're blaming God for the trouble that they're in, for their current spot. And I think Asaf really relates to them. He, he reads this, and he's like, yeah, that's me. Why have you brought me here, God? But then the key is, is to keep reading. So this is verse 13. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry out to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. So this is really cool. God, said to, God says to go forward. Uh, and if you're an Israelite hearing this, you're like, what do you mean go forward? There's the sea right there. I can't go forward. It's impossible. But what God does is he demonstrates his incredible power by parting the sea in front of them, this incredible thing that no one even could have imagined was possible, and he makes them a way forward. And he, again, demonstrates how powerful he is. Sometimes when we go through really hard times and we're doubting God, we can't see a way forward. And we ask God, why, why have you brought me to this place? And we need to be reminded to move forward. And I think this is where Asaf really uh, spent his meditation and what he really got out of this. He's reflecting on God's power, and he's reminded that God can make a way, for, way forward for him even if he can't see it. Verse 19 again, he says, Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. There's no way anyone could have known that God was going to do this. There is no way through the sea. That's kind of the ironic part of this, right? There is no way to walk through the sea. So it was unseen, but God still made that way. And it's interesting that we never hear in this psalm that Asaph has a resolution to the problem that he introduces at the beginning. But what he does get instead by remembering and reflecting on what God has done is he gets new faith and new hope that God is with him even in his time of trouble and that he has a way through his trials even if he can't see it. So Psalm 77, how do we work through our doubt? First, we don't bottle or cover it up. We bring it and we take it to God in prayer. We allow ourselves to take a step back, to be skeptical of our own skepticism and doubt, and identify what the source of our doubt is and how our perceptions might have changed. We remember and we meditate on what God has done on his actions. And from that remembrance, we can take comfort that God has absolute control over the chaos of this world, and that he has a way forward even when we can't see it. So the exodus and the parting of the Red Sea is the, the biggest moment in the history of Israel, so it makes sense that that's why Asaf goes here to sort of meditate and remember. But for us as, as Christians and as followers of Jesus, our most significant event is the cross. When we're going through it and we're doubting God's mercy and love, we can bring that to him in prayer and we can meditate and remember that God loved us so much that he sent his only son to die for us. 
And any doubt that we have that God is good or that he's in control really can't stand in the face of that reality that he has done that for us because he demonstrated his true character, who he really is beyond any shadow of a doubt in the most emphatic way possible by allowing Jesus to die for our sins. I think Paul is is reflecting on this in Romans chapter 5. I'm going to read starting from verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We all are going to face difficult things, things that are going to make us question God and question who he is. But we can have hope that he will use these things to help us to grow in our faith and love and appreciation from him. And, and why can we have hope in this? Why can we believe that he will use our sufferings? Because he sacrificed everything for us. He made a way when there was no way. And he showed that he has power even over death, even, even over the most universal, powerful thing that exists in our world today. God showed that he has complete and utter control over it. So that's why we can trust that he does have a way forward, and that he is powerful enough, and that he does love us enough to make that happen. And the key thing that we have to do is remember. And this is why communion is so, so important. And I think it's the most important thing we do every week. If you don't remember a single thing I say, but you took communion, it, it was a good Sunday. Because we so easily forget who God is and what he's done for us. And if, if, if we do forget, we're just going to be swallowed up by this world, by our own doubt and our own pain and our own struggle. And communion is a physical reminder every week that resets our perspective. So when we take communion, let's not just eat the bread, drink the juice. Let's take it and remember and meditate on what God has done and deeply ponder it and deeply think about it and allow it to transform us and allow it to speak to the darkest places in our life. Remember when you take, when you take the bread, Christ's body, remember that he came to this earth and experienced the same pain that you're going through. When you drink the cup, remember his blood and remember that he allowed himself to be tortured and brutally killed to forgive your sins so that you could have eternal life. Uh, I'm going to invite Zoe and Ryan back up. Um, each week we've had a time of response to these psalms and a time that we can take the things that we've learned uh, to God in prayer. So uh, for the first two songs of worship, what I want you to do is turn to someone you're with, maybe groups of two or three or whatever, and I want you to uh, discuss this prompt with each other. 
What events from your life help you remember God's true character in times of trouble or doubt? So really encourage each other and and speak to one another and remember the good things that God has done for you. And then uh, I'll come back up and I'll I'll transition to our second part, which um, I would really, really encourage you, if, if you're a believer and a follower of Jesus, to take communion, to remember Remember what God has done and, and meditate on it and allow that meditation and that response to uh, tra- translate it into praising him as we sing these last songs together. Praise him for everything that he's done and for the way that he has made for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you that you are bigger than our doubt, that you invite us to bring those to you, and that that you are just good and that you love us beyond anything we we can even fully know or experience. Thank you, Father, for Jesus. Thank you for seeing our broken state and for loving us enough to send your son to die for us so that we could be made right with you again. I pray that in this time of response, we would be able to encourage each other, uh, that uh, whoever is in just a really dark time would be encouraged and, and refreshed in who you are, and that together we might praise you for the good uh, and awesome God that you are. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.